Welcome to the Healthcare Insight Podcast. I'm Eric Silverman. And we're really excited about this week's guest, Nick Ragone from Ascension Healthcare joined us the other day to chat about their evolution towards a centralized system and how they've addressed the COVID-19 pandemic. And I think he has some really interesting perspective to share. I do too. You know, I th- this idea of kind of centralization of brand is something that, that that I really enjoyed kind of exploring and talking about because, you know, if we look at the kind of national footprint of systems, we see a couple of kind of divergent paths. There's the real decentralized brand approach that sometimes you see on the proprietary side. On the faith-based side, I think, you know, we see kind of various degrees of success and kind of centralization. But Nick's perspective was really about carrying that centralization forward with mission as the common thread of experience that people could expect. And I thought, you know, for me, it provides a real center point to that effort that while, you know, I've certainly recognized the importance of consistency of experience and service and expectation at the market level, the idea of just making it at its heart about the mission and connectivity there it creates a lot of opportunity, right? Yeah, I agree. And the emphasis that they place on their people and sharing great stories of caregivers going the extra mile to take care of their patients, it really, I think, portrays this view that Ascension genuinely cares about giving their patients the best possible experience when they set foot in an Ascension care location. And I think that's a really exciting opportunity for the communities that they serve, in addition to all of the people that they have working across their ministries in the U.S., one of the things Nick talked about too was kind of his his view of his role as chief storyteller. And you know, I think I, I said it in the interview, but but obviously there's just kind of alignment there, right? As as our organization is so much about helping kind of enable that storytelling on behalf of clients. But one of the things we really got to was this idea of 161,000 associates and the kind of amplifier effect and opportunity to really connect with associates, not only around the brand, but but really amplifying the story of, of Ascension. Yeah, I agree. You know, one other thing that Nick talked about that's certainly not a novel idea right now is the fact that Ascension is going to stay remote largely in the in the near term as we move out of the pandemic. And I think his view that it's increased some of the connectivity that he has with his team in a certain way, I think is really cool. And it'll be interesting to see how other health systems embrace that too. I think we see so many clients still working from home and continuing to stay productive and have even more personal relationships with both us as vendors and their colleagues, um, that I hope that trend continues as we head into 2021 and 2022 even. I totally agree. Mission-based organization, kind of culture, kind of how, how to run a global or global and, and national organization in the midst of the current environment, all of those things and so much more. St. Louis is the epicenter of chess. I mean, come on, great fun with Nick Ragone. Let's get right into the interview. Nick Ragone, welcome to the Healthcare Insight Podcast. Great to be here. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much. We're really, we're really excited about it. So, um, you know, we'll have plenty of time to, to get right down to business and, and we will. But, but I got to say, I, uh, I've been really interested in the Your Move chess uh, organization that you started back in 2015 to help inner city kids in the St. Louis area. Maybe tell us just a little bit about that and, and particularly 
you know, the Queen's Gambit has like skyrocketed chess popularity. What's that doing for your move chess? Well, it's a great question. And I'm a, I, I've watched the Queen's Gambit. I think it's fantastic, really well done. But um, so I, I uh, my son, who's now 16, is an avid uh, competitive chess player. And so about six or seven years ago, he came to me sort of apropos of nothing, the way, a, you know, a nine or 10 year old would and said um, one day, you know, do, do all the schools in St. Louis have chess clubs or after school chess? And I said, I, you know, I don't know. I have no idea. You know, so the next day at work, it was kind of, you know, it was on my mind. I'm like, I'm really curious. I wonder if they do. And so I happen to have some contacts at the St. Louis Chess Club, which is, for your listeners that don't know, chess St. Louis is kind of the epicenter of not only chess in the United States, but global chess, thanks to uh, one philanthropist, a guy named Rex Singfield. And so he created the St. Louis Chess Club. And so it it really is an extraordinary organization. So I called them up and said, you know, not for nothing, but just wondering, do all the schools in the area have either chess club or after school chess? And the guy that answered uh, said, well, no. And in fact, we got a call today from uh, Dr. Joe Davis, the new superintendent at the Ferguson School Districts inquiring about what would it what would it take financially to bring chess to all the the 18 elementary and middle schools of Ferguson and and this was right after the unrest in, in Ferguson in 2015 and so I said you know what I have an idea let me get right back, back to you so I I went down to my CEO's office and I, office and I said hey I have this idea of starting this chess program called your move chess that would really help fund after school chess in in the Ferguson School District and other underserved areas in St. Louis. And he said, I love it, you know, go ahead and do it. And so that was the genesis of the program five years ago. And it started off small. And since then, we've raised over $600,000. We've expanded it to 40 or 50 schools. We even expanded it into a couple of other cities, Chicago and Nashville. And it's an amazing program. The, the kids that go through this, we we do a, a, a study every year on the on the program. And we find that their attendance at school is higher, their enjoyment of school is higher, they uh, show that they're more confident, they, they feel like they're better able to solve problems. And so the benefits have been extraordinary. And, and some of the, the kids in the program are really good competitive chess players. I mean, this isn't just a feel-good program. They're actually, we're going to have hopefully some future grandmasters come out of this program. And so it's one of the most proud achievements of my career that we were able to create this and sustain it five years later. It's still growing, it, you know, we're funding it and it's growing and it's really impacting the lives of school children in the, in the Ferguson and North County area of St. Louis. That's really cool. And, you know, it's not, it makes me think your 16 year old is going to have a really cool thing to put on his college applications too, you know, original ideation for your move chess, you know, as it was. Yeah, I wasn't done with that reason, but it certainly has crossed my mind and, uh, of course. Uh, you know, sometimes the best ideas of, are born of the simplest inquiries. And, you know, we're all guilty of this. How many times have our kids, you know, especially when they're younger, you know, tug at our shirt and ask us a question or, you know, they're so inquisitive and curious. And sometimes they ask questions out of a lot of left field. And, you know, sometimes we answer and sometimes we say we're busy and, you know, check with me later. And just for some reason, it stuck with me. And, uh, and I'm really happy that it did. And, you know, chess has taken off, not just in the U.S., but globally during the pandemic, because so many of us are working from home, online chess has absolutely exploded. And that combined with the, the, the television show, Queen's Gambit, has really, it, it's created a uh, chess fever in this country that we haven't seen since the early 70s when Bobby Fischer took on Boris Spatsky and, and he was on the cover of Time Magazine and Life Magazine. And 
literally for a couple of weeks in the summer of 72, chess was the lead on the nightly news every night, the Fisher matches. And so it's been 50 years since we've really seen that type of engagement with the chess community and excitement. And, I, and for those of your listeners that don't play it, it's a wonderful game. You can take up at any point. I, I started playing about seven years ago and I'm a, a competitive player now. And, and we also, you know, there's research coming out that's going to show that um, learning chess, even as an adult, or particularly as an adult, helps stave off some of the symptoms of dementia and early onset dementia because you're really, you're engaging your brain in a different way. And so that's exciting too. Yeah. You know, just a kind of quick, quick personal story. So my brother was always pretty good at chess and I was never any good at chess. And so he'd always beat me and I never got, so my 10 year old, I've got a 10 year old now. So he was nine, he comes to me and he's starting to play chess. He's pretty interested. So he gets to where he can beat me. He can beat his mom. And uh, then our good friends in the neighborhood here, their son is, um, I think he's like county or school district champion here in, in Mount Pleasant, South Carolina and just beats the tar out of my, my 10 year old son. So I'm struggling a little bit kind of keeping that enthusiasm under kind of the what's possible moniker. But, but I agree that, you know, it's a really wonderful thing that you can do at any age. And, you know, how many things can my 10 year old beat me at? The answer to that is- well, it'll, it'll become more frequent as he gets older and you get older. Basketball <laughs> and golf, it'll, it'll happen. Yeah, absolutely. Good stuff. Thanks, Nick. That's that's an awesome story. I, and how lucky for your 16-year-old to be able to be a part of that at such a young age. That's an awesome experience. You know, one of the things that we're really interested in diving into with you today is the rebrand project that you've embarked upon in, at Ascension over the past few years. And I know you've talked about this a lot and probably get asked many of the same questions, but one of the things I'm really interested in and admire a lot about how you've approached this is just your approach to making it about patient care and the patients that you serve rather than some of the other rebrands that we hear about that are more about operational efficiency and cost savings and things like that. Can you talk a little bit about the intentionality behind that decision and how that's manifest and how you roll out the brand across the country? Yeah, I can. And thank you. And it's a great insight and observation. And I appreciate your making it. When I started seven years ago at Ascension, we really were a, for lack of a better word, a holding company. We had 20 different brands in our markets from St. Vincent's in Indiana to St. Thomas in Tennessee and Seton in Texas and so forth. And they're all amazing, extraordinary healthcare systems with deep roots in the, in the community and great reputable brands, but they were disconnected. So the average consumer would never know that, you know, if, if, they're, if they're in Tennessee going to uh, St. Thomas physician practice and they have a, a parent that's retired in Pensacola, that goes to Sacred Heart, that, that it's part of the same system or that, you know, we have senior living, we have urgent care, we have primary care, we have obviously acute care and service lines, we have at-home care. None of it was connected by name. And so it actually made it difficult for, you know, we're in, we have 2,700 sites of care. We're, we're larger. We have more sites of care than any other system. We're even larger than the VA when it comes to sites of care. And none of them were really connected in any meaningful way. Within a market, they might be, but you know we're spread out over 20 states. And so as we kind of moved from a, a more of a holding company model to an integrated operating company, we also thought about how do we make it easier for our, our patients, both physically and online, to navigate uh, the complexity of our sites of care. And that's why we decided to create one you know, kind of national Ascension brand. And so it's taken the better part of five years to do that, but it really was about making patient navigation, again, both online and physically of our sites of care, 
easier to connect the points of care, to help integrate the points of care, to get our 160,000 associates feeling like they're part of one system versus part of 20 different systems, sharing best practices, sharing learnings, treating each other like colleagues. And it's really been extraordinary. And it's also amplified our voice. You know, we have a much bigger voice now, whether it's in DC advocating for policies that we think support underserved communities or whether it's nationally as Ascension brand, you know, we, we speak with one voice across the country and it's really come in handy during the COVID pandemic. Having one Ascension brand has allowed us to communicate much more efficiently and effectively across the country about, you know, safety, about reassuring patients. It's okay to take care of your chronic needs with us. We'll, we'll keep you safe. Now about vaccine communications, doing it with one voice, one time across our, our markets as Ascension, as that trusted brand, uh, has really, really been helpful in the way we've navigated really the last year during the pandemic. And so in some ways, it's accelerated that brand coming together because our markets really appreciate now being, you know, part of the, connected to the Ascension brand. And so it's been a, a five-year journey. It would seem like a long time, but in, in brand terms, it's really not. To do a, a rebranding of this size, and it's the largest ever in the healthcare space, takes a lot of time. And we spent the first two or three years just on the internal, you know, kind of getting socialization and internal buy-in talking to our stakeholders, explaining why we're doing this, and then spent the last two years, you know, kind of doing the physical, you know, the signage switch out and, and changing the external brand. But it's been a really good journey. And it's, I think it's put us in a much stronger position as a health system. Maybe just to, to kind of follow on that, I was reading an article, you were featured in the Wall Street Journal not, not long ago on the subject of storytelling and building trust. And, and you mentioned this a little bit, you know, as, as a connection point to, to the brand, but, but talk, about, talk about storytelling and, and trust building through the lens of, of that brand for a minute, if you will. Yeah, I mean, we, I consider myself, uh, you know, I'm executive vice president, chief marketing officer, but I consider myself chief storyteller. You know, we're, I'm privileged every day to tell the story of our amazing caregivers and our amazing patients. Uh, and it's, a, it's an awesome responsibility. And over the last year, it's really highlighted, you know, most of our marketing is about caregiver gratitude and patient appreciation and telling that story about our, our selfless caregivers and our trusted patients and doing everything we can to make both of their, you know, our associates jobs easier and making our patients feel comfortable and safe. And so I, I think about storytelling all the time and having one story to tell, the Ascension story again, is much easier than trying to tell 20 stories because it's the same story no matter what market you're in, which is we have you know the most extraordinary, selfless, dedicated caregivers any health system can have. And, and they really honor and care for our patients and our communities in a unique and special way. And so it's pretty simple. That's the story we tell every day, whether it's through TV commercials, and we've had some great ones, or through you know, our uh, direct mail or email or text messaging or billboards or earned media. Uh, it doesn't matter what the channel is, we're telling that same story, which is gratitude for our caregivers and reassurance for our patients and having one voice behind it, one brand, telling that same ubiquitous story. And again, it's accelerated, I think, our, you know, this kind of brand journey, this journey to becoming one ascension. It's really accelerated that because our 160,000 associates feel you know, like they are connected to each other now because we're all Ascension caregivers. 
and they love hearing that story, whether it's about a colleague that works in the same clinic as them or a colleague that works a thousand miles away in another clinic, they're still part of that same Ascension family giving that extraordinary care and we're telling that same story. I really like that approach. I think it's an interesting one when we're in this moment in time where so many health systems are so focused on the consumer facing messaging and what healthcare means for a consumer, what patients need, moreover sharing their own stories and trying to align their organizations around providing high quality care. I noticed that you recently launched the Good Day Ascension podcast and I really, really like that format of sharing perspective from your colleagues across the country. Can you talk a little bit about how that's taken off and become kind of a repeatable content channel for you? Sure. One of the things that the pandemic has challenged us with is, is finding new and different ways to communicate really to our own associates. You know, we have 160,000 associates spread out over 20 states and 2,700 care sites. And, you know, it, it, at times it can be challenging to communicate to them in real time because they're not all in front of their computers or their phones all the time. Many, 60, 70,000 of them are caregivers. And, and so they're on the front lines providing care. And so, you know, years ago, we created a magazine, a quarterly magazine called Good Day Ascension that gets mailed to every associate because a lot of them, for a lot of them, it's the best way to communicate with them is, is it kind of through a magazine. We obviously have an intranet and we have, uh, you know, all associate emails and we have other things. But one of the things I kept hearing is that our associates love listening to podcasts in general and why not have extend the Good Day Ascension brand, which started as our intranet and then it became a magazine and now it's morphed into a, a, a podcast and soon to be a, a sort of a, a tape TV show that we're going to do. But our associates love listening to podcasts as they commute to and from work. And so back in March, we created it as a, a way to communicate during COVID, share some of those amazing caregiver stories. I mean, we were we were getting hundreds of stories every week just of caregivers doing extraordinary things. And we wanted to share it with our, our colleagues and make sure they saw some of the work that their, their colleagues across the country were doing. And so we kicked it off. It, it was uh, started off as a weekly thing. Now it's become twice a month. And um, each one gets tens of thousands of listens and downloads. And, and it's really focused on caregivers. It's, it's, you know, occasionally we'll have an executive on there talking about some big policy initiative or, or, or some larger programmatic initiative but mostly it's it's talking to caregivers, frontline caregivers, and, and others who are out there, really interesting individuals doing unique things. And it's it's been wildly successful and so much so that we're now extending the Good Day brand even further, soon to be launched a kind of a, a 10 minute, you know, video recap sort of show, almost like a newscast, monthly highlighting kind of the video elements of, of what um, some of the extraordinary things going on across our system. And and so, um, you know, sometimes, you know, you're, you're, you're challenged to innovate. And during the pandemic, it was one of those times where on the internal communication side, we were really challenged to figure out additional creative ways to reach 160,000 people in real time. And, and this is one of the things we came up with. It's good stuff. You know, it'll be no surprise that, that we share your enthusiasm for storytelling and great content as a mechanism to create a fabric of connectivity across, across organizations. And, you know, when you, you talk about the brand and the connectivity of the, the sites of care, the, the communication around connectivity for the team, you know, reflect on how much all of us have learned over the last year or so working from home. As you kind of look out at 2021, 
Talk to us maybe a little bit about some of the best practices that you've arrived at running a large organization, a large team and doing it from, you know, now in a, in a fully remote environment like we are. Yeah, it's, I, think, I think every uh, company in the country is asking that same question, trying to figure out what's worked and maybe what hasn't worked and lessons learned and what does it mean for the future uh, once we you know, eventually get to a kind of post-COVID world. And you know, a couple of thoughts on that. The first is we flipped a switch early March and, and literally went remote with about 50,000 non-clinical workers, people like myself, over a 48-hour period, a weekend. On a Friday, we decided we were going fully remote and on a Monday, we were remote and and, and didn't miss a beat, which is it really speaks volumes about our technology group, Essential Technologies, and some of the platforms they had built, particularly our, our, our collaboration with Google. We are on G Suite, and we didn't do all that with the idea that we're going to go remote someday because of the pandemic, but uh, it turned out to be a really prescient decision, and has helped us transition to, again, for our non-clinical workforce, going pretty much fully remote since March and staying there. And... Um, uh, you know, my thought is, at least for my team, I have 200 team members around the country. In some ways, we've been more productive than ever because, you know, you're not traveling. You're, you're, um, you don't even have a commute. You know, I kind of wake up at six o'clock every day and by 620, I have coffee and I'm in front of my laptop working. Probably not the healthiest thing ever, but we're, we're kind of all, you know, we've been in the situation where we're in front of our computers and working. And for us in marketing, you know, we're, we're privileged to, again, share the stories of our caregivers. And so they're working extraordinarily long hours. And we feel like we owe it to them to, to, to keep up the pace and, and tell their story. And so my team has been energized. You know, we're running a year in now. We're, we're still running on adrenaline. We still have a daily adrenaline rush of, of telling that story, whether it's, you know, now the vaccination story or prior to that, you know, the reassurance story. And so my team is, you know, doing well now. And we've learned a lot. You know, there's still, even though we're remote, we, we, I feel more connected than ever to my colleagues because we're on you know, Google chats and Zoom calls all day. And we find time to, you know, share each other's company through virtual happy hours and the like. And, and so in a very paradoxical way, I feel like my team is, is closer and tighter than ever, even though I haven't seen most of my team members in, in over a year now. And I know my colleagues feel similarly, you know, colleagues in other parts of uh, the ministry uh, in Ascension feel like, you know, they're still very connected to each other, even though it's all through, you know, Google chats and Zoom calls and the like. Now, what it means long term as we transition, you know, we're gonna we're gonna work remotely in St. Louis beyond COVID. We feel like that's the right thing for us. We're keeping space in St. Louis, and we'll be able to have shared hoteling space, and you know, and still have meetings and that sort of thing. But we're gonna we're gonna try to transition to this kind of hybrid approach and see how it goes, you know. But I think there's a lot of there's a lot of you know unknown unknowns still about how that's not just for us, but for all companies. What is you know what are what are some of the gains? And the things that work during COVID that are worth doing going forward, and and what are some of the other areas where we want to get back to, you know, kind of the whether it's travel or in-person meetings. And I think we're all gonna, you know, you guys, us, every every company is gonna figure that out as we, you know, as the light at the end of the tunnel comes brighter and we get past COVID. I do feel comfortable in saying I think a year from now, you know, the way this country works will probably look different than the way it did two years ago. I don't know how dramatically different, but I just feel like, you know, we've, um, you know, not just in the way we work, but the way we consume healthcare, the way we shop, the way we, you know, think about our, our lives will be impacted beyond just the pandemic itself. And so I know that we, we have been very fortunate in that we were able to make that conversion over a weekend 
And I, I would argue that we've been more productive than ever, but I also would argue it's, it's hard to sustain that forever. I think, you know, we're always looking at fatigue and exhaustion and burnout and trying to make sure that, you know, people feel they have that work-life balance. You know, it's tricky when you're working from home, the work-life balance gets really blurred and it becomes all work. And, and you have to make, you know, you have to be intentional about carving out time to go for a walk at lunch or work out or go to on the Peloton or, or just have some, some me time because you, you don't have that time in the car to decompress. You don't have all the little time we build in during the day in between meetings, you go from one Zoom to the next. And so I think that there's a, there's a real aspect of appreciating that there still needs to be some time to decompress between meetings. There's a lot of real truth to that. I mean, you know, the importance of intentionality, the, the potential for consequences. You know, interestingly, we've got a reasonably parallel path there. You know, we, we made the decision for us to keep our office footprint, but to reduce it dramatically and to, to be remote beyond, beyond COVID in an environment where we still do have some kind of shared space and an opportunity to get together and do those things. And I'll tell you, Nick, one of my <laughs> favorite things about this approach to business is, you know, while, while we've maintained a really professional environment, it's nice in some ways to have blurred and humanized that line. You know, it's like, yeah, hang out with people's dogs and stuff now and, you know, see the projects their kids are working on in the background and all those things that were talked about in the workplace, but maybe had a little bit of distance to them are now just woof, right front and center and in, in kind of how we interact. And it's, build a real natural bridge to some of the human connection that I think is so important from a kind of colleague work environment. So that, that piece has been fun for me. So I've gotten to know a lot of our four-legged friends among my colleagues and it, it does, uh, you know, I used to be a suit and tie guy every day and I haven't worn one since March 11th. And my setup now usually, you know, involves a baseball cap, uh, some version of a sweatshirt. And, you know, I, I know that it may, you know, my colleagues have mentioned it over and over to me. It seems to make me more approachable than when I was suit and tie and cufflinks and, you know, and, and slick back hair. So there, there is something to be said for that. Yeah. One day our cufflinks will see the light of day again. <laughs> one day. Good stuff. I, I really appreciate that perspective, Nick. I'm really excited to hear what your view on where healthcare marketing is headed, see the TV show come out and, and all of that evolve as we head into 2021. Any favorite brands to follow, thought leaders in the marketing space that are really top of mind for you as you try to plan for the future and help your team evolve alongside that evolution? You know, I, um, I'm always looking at, particularly outside of the healthcare vertical, always trying to understand whether it's in, in the travel industry, uh, particularly in the last year as they've made a pivot, but, you know, um, in consumer goods, in uh, retail, you know, what, what, some of what are the best practices that other, other verticals are doing, in part because healthcare, I think, uh, when it comes to marketing, particularly hospital marketing, has been a laggard, I think, for years and years and years. You know, hospital marketing consisted of, you know, good, what I would call good qualitative awareness, some good TV commercials and billboards. You know, so long as you had awareness in your market, uh, most people had very little choice, depending on what their payer network was. They went to either this hospital or that hospital. But now the healthcare landscape has completely changed. Consumers are way more empowered. There's all sorts of options, online care, virtual health, urgent care, and so forth, that the qualitative model no longer suffices. And so we've really been looking at different industries to see how they do 
you know, direct to consumer marketing, which is something we're beginning to do, you know, what they're doing um, using CRM based marketing. And so we've adopted a lot of that from other verticals, particularly, you know, CRM based marketing. We just started that really tracking kind of those, those outbound emails and texts and even phone calls in some cases and trying to, you know, trying to follow the life of the, the customer journey using our CRM tools. And so, um, I, you know, I'm always looking at that and particularly in the last year as, as verticals have been wildly disrupted, you know, I'm thinking of um, travel and leisure, you know, hotels, airlines, even, even the sports industry and how they've tried to pivot their brands. And it's been really uh, interesting and a lot of creative solutions out there, a lot of smart people trying to figure out, you know, again, nobody, I think very few people planned on a pandemic, but to see how industries and brands have pivoted has been uh, a real learning for me. You know, I remember back in 2008, 2009, just how much talent migration there was into healthcare in the in the financial crisis. There was so much disruption in industries of marketing that had typically been kind of well advanced compared to the, the healthcare space. And while I haven't seen a ton of kind of hallmarks of that same dimension today, your comment makes me think about it a little bit. You know, I wonder how much kind of great talent we'll see kind of rise to the occasion of mission-focused healthcare marketing, given some of the circumstantial fallout of, there's a lot of great talented people, I'm sure, at the airlines and travel and leisure and, you know, global hotel brands that find themselves wondering, hmm, I wonder what post-travel and leisure career opportunities, you know, look like. So that'll be interesting to see. I just want to ask you, Nick, you know, you, you mentioned you're the CMO of a direct report of, of 200 team members, 161,000 team member organization. You know, what's, what's unique in your view and experience about leading a faith-based marketing organization compared to, you know, some of the proprietary or simply not-for-profit or, or secular side of, of, of the marketing world in healthcare? Well, it's, um, you know, we're, we're the largest Catholic system, we're the largest nonprofit system, and we, we feel a real responsibility. We, we, you know, we're a national brand. We speak, when we speak, um, you know, we, we, we keep in mind that we speak on behalf of Ascension and to some extent Catholic healthcare, and it's a great responsibility. I mean, we talk about mission with a capital M. Most companies talk about mission with a lowercase m. We, we have a, a mission capital M, and it's been around for hundreds of years, and that's to essentially to serve underserved communities. I mean, that's literally in our mission. And um, it's a real privilege because we don't have to wake up every day and try to figure out, you know, who we are, reinvent ourselves. You, know, you see companies all the time, great companies, that every five or 10 years, they have a new mission statement, where every 15 years or 20 years, and they're always trying to reinvent themselves and not just their business models, but reinvent who they are as companies. And I have the luxury, I don't have to worry about that ever. I never have to wake up trying to figure out who we are today. What do we stand for? What's our raison d'etre? What are we supposed to be doing? We've known that for 200 years and we'll know that 200 years from now. We're, we're here to serve underserved communities. It's my job to be the storyteller, right? To connect the dots with the, the care that we give and the communities that we serve. And, and uh, so I, I feel like I'm very fortunate as, as our chief marketing officer and chief storyteller that I, I really only have to think about how to translate our extraordinary caregivers and their and their and our patient stories into narratives for our community. I don't have to think about, you know, is this connecting back to our mission? It is our mission. 
And it, it's always connected to our mission. And so, and that mission will never change. And I never have to worry about it. And I never have to, you know, try to refigure it out or figure out what our true north is this week or next week. And and that's that's a real luxury and a privilege. And that's not lost on me. And when I think about telling the Ascension story, it always starts with, you know, we're we're a Catholic ministry and we serve underserved communities. And it's pretty easy to understand how to market that once you know, it's clear this is who we are. It's great perspective. Um, Nick Ragone, this has been a lot of fun. We really appreciate you joining us on the podcast today. Thanks so much. No, thank you for having me. I, uh, I really enjoyed it and uh, look forward to hearing it. <laughs>